0: 400 years of silence, 400 years of a people waiting in anticipation and expectation that God would speak, and yet 400 years of nothingness, a dryness, a prophetic wilderness, if you will, 400 years of the absence of something when something was so needed. This 400 years of silence is the backdrop to the narrative of the New Testament, to the beginning of the story about the birth of Jesus, this idea that there was 400 years since God had last spoken. He had last spoken through his prophet Malachi. 400 years previous, Malachi had gotten the word of God, and Malachi had stood before all of God's people in that day and said, don't worry, a new time is coming. Malachi began to say, hey, a prophet will come in the future, one who will look like Elijah, and this prophet, he will bring God's word, and, and it'll be like God will turn the hearts of the children to the father, and the hearts of the father to the children, and there'll be this reconciliation and redemption that God will move like he's never moved before. And for a group of people who had just come out of 70 years of exile in Babylon, who had come back into the promised land and had realized that their sin had taken them into exile, a group of people who were longing and realizing that redemption would never be found in themselves, but would only be found if God acted again. Here's Malachi. Telling them that God is on the move, that God is about to bring a word that will literally change the hearts of everyone in this world. You you can almost sense at the end of the Old Testament that, that all of Israel is on its tippy toes, leaning forward in excitement and anticipation for God to speak. And then this. Crickets. Nothing. For 400 years. 400 years of silence. I don't know what you're like when you're waiting for God to speak. I wonder how you are when your prayers don't seem to go answered. I wonder what it's like for you when you wrestle with the reality that you've been asking God for something and it doesn't seem to be like God is present. Today we start Advent and Advent is the idea of a season of four Sundays before Christmas. Advent is the Latin word that means coming and literally what Advent is, it's a time to prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus. Note that I did not say, prepare ourselves for the coming of Christmas, because this is what we often turn Advent into in the global church. We we turn it into four weeks to be able to get ready for the celebration of Christmas Day. We cover our buildings in Christmas decorations. In fact, I wonder if you've been coming to the Vine for a while, whether you'll notice the distinct lack of Christmas decorations today. Normally, on this first Sunday of Advent, we cover this building in fairy lights and tinsels and Christmas trees. We start to sing carols, and we celebrate the reality that Jesus was born in a stable. Now, don't worry. We have not canceled Christmas. (laughs) COVID will not take Christmas from us. Can I have an amen? We will be open in Jesus' name, prophetically. For Christmas Day. We'll see. <laughs> but Advent, Advent isn't about preparing for tinsels and Christmas trees and fairy lights. Advent is about preparing your life for more of Jesus. Advent sticks itself right in there and disrupts us in the most commercial of seasons. Advent cries out for us to slow down. Advent is like driving a wedge between the anticipation we have in our heart for all those great gifts on Christmas Day and the reality that our hearts might need to change. Advent is disruptive and difficult, hard to grapple with. I wonder if you could imagine what it would have been like for the Israelites in that moment trying to grapple themselves with the reality that they so desperately want God to act and yet he seems to be so far away. Advent gives us a chance to do some work on our hearts and to ask ourselves some deep and important questions even in the middle of the commercialism of Christmas. Questions such as these, am I truly ready for Jesus to come again to this world? I mean, am I truly desiring for him to return? And with this, am I ready to hear what he has to say to me, to us? Am I ready to hear what God wants to say to me, to us? Israel was not ready to hear what God was about to say. I mean, could you imagine it? 400 years of silence. 400 years of waiting really can harden your heart, can't it? 400 years of being then embedded in a most oppressive Greco-Roman empire. By the time of the start of the narrative of the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, God's people had been waiting a long time and they had changed as a people. In fact, in the opening pages of the New Testament, what you see in Israel is a divided and fractured people of God. There are essentially four types of people at the moment of Jesus' birth in Israel. The first were called Essenes. And the Essenes believed that the way to get God to speak again was to get themselves out of the ugliness of society, to retreat into the wilderness and simply pray. And if they could pray enough, purify them enough, outside of the horrors of society, God might speak again. Then there were the Zealots. Zealots believed that the way that you get God to speak is you blow stuff up. I mean, you fight the Romans. You bring revolution. That revolution is the thing that will get God to say something again. The Pharisees were embedded into the heart of society, but they believed that when God was to speak, it would come only if they could adhere to the Mosaic law as best as possible. Because they realized that it was the absence of the law, it was disobedience to the law that brought them into exile in Babylon, so now if they could just be as perfect with the law as possible, maybe God would speak again. The Sadducees decided that the best way to get God to speak would be to integrate with the Greek Roman Empire. I mean, this empire is here. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. If we could just partner with them, if we could come alongside of them, do some deals with them, maybe we'll get better friends on ourselves, and maybe if we're so nice to everybody, God might speak again. I wonder what you're like when you're waiting for God to speak. I wonder if you think the best way is just to remove yourself from everybody and pray. I wonder if you think it's to fight I wonder if you think it's just to try to be a perfect Christian and maybe God will answer that prayer. I wonder whether it might be some compromise in your life when you're waiting for God to speak. Here's Israel crying out, waiting, and here's the reality. They were not prepared for Jesus. They did not expect a pregnant virgin. They did not expect them the manger in a stable in a place called Bethlehem. They had no idea what was ahead of them with the ministry of Jesus Christ, the healings he would do, the miracles he would do. They had no concept of the coming kingdom of God. They could not understand the reality of a death on a cross and the profundity of a resurrection just three days later. I mean, Israel was so steeped in the hardness of their hearts that they could not ever understand what was about to happen in the person of Jesus. And so what Israel needed was a disruption. What Israel needed was a change of heart. They needed God to come and do something, to drive a wedge in them, to rip them out of their complacency and help them to begin to think again afresh on God. What Israel needed is what I think we also need here in 2020, and that is Advent. Advent sits for us in Scripture around a particular person. This person is the epitome of what Advent is all about. His name is John the Baptist. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think of John the Baptist. It's probably not this image on the screen right now, although this is a beautiful painting of John the Baptist from church history. But the John the Baptist you're probably aware of is the Sunday school version of John the Baptist, the one who lives in the desert, who has unkempt and long hair, the one who eats locusts. I have done all three of those things in my life. I just want you to know. I've never done them at the same time, but I have done all three. And here's John the Baptist, the most unlikely of sources, who is about to step in and bring the disruption that Israel so needed. And what we want to do here at The Vine over these four Sundays leading up to Christmas is we want to show you the life and the ministry of John the Baptist, In fact, what we want to do is show you the four movements of his ministry. John actually has four movements as he journeys Israel into a place of being prepared to receive Jesus. And so as we think about what is it for us to be able to receive Jesus from his birth and also be excited about his return in the second coming, I think we need to follow these movements once again of John's ministry. John issues a call to the people to respond. He welcomes and invites them into the desert. And in the desert place, he baptizes them, and then he releases them as followers of Jesus. A cool, a desert, the waters, the release. The four movements of John's ministry will become the backdrop to these four Sundays for us as we get closer and closer to that moment where we will celebrate the arrival of Jesus. But before we get there, May we find ourselves in his footsteps, and may we step step by step in getting prepared for the coming of Jesus. Is everybody okay? So I want to take you on this journey today with the call that he brings to Israel, because I believe it is a call that resounds afresh for us today. I'm going to start by showing you how Luke presents the opening elements of John's ministry from Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. By the way, I'm having so much fun right now. I just want you to know, I really love you all, and I really enjoy doing this, and I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad you're online. We're one big happy family amen? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysnassus, I'm going to murder all these words, by the way, Lysnassus, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God, after 400 years, came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. For as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley should be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads will be made straight and the rough ways smooth so that all people we'll see God's salvation. Luke does a fascinating thing here when he wants to introduce the ministry of John the Baptist. He starts by naming no less than seven rulers. Now, Luke is a doctor and a historian, and he's passionate about making sure he puts all of his words into the context of history. But normally what Luke would do is name maybe one leader or one moment of that history to help you to understand the time that that event took place. Nowhere in all of Luke's writings does he mention seven leaders back to back to help you to understand what Advent, what John the Baptist, and what this breaking in of God's word after 400 years is all about. These seven rulers are important to understand. Now before we jump into that, I think if Luke was writing today, he would mention all the important rulers in our lives. If you're here from China, maybe Xi Jinping would be at the top of the list. If you're from the US, maybe it would be Donald Trump or Joe Biden, depending on whether it's December or January. Maybe if you're from the UK, it would be Boris Johnson's name at the top of that list. If you're a Hong Konger here, maybe Carrie Lam's name would be on top of that list. Luke would put this moment into the context of its history. And he's doing so because he wants to teach something specifically about what Advent is all about. So I want to break down these seven people real quick for you to help you to understand what God's doing here. Is that okay? So the first one is Tiberius Caesar. This is the guy right at the top. This is the guy who's right at the head of the whole Greco-Roman empire. That's where Luke starts. And and the interesting thing about Tiberius Caesar was he was one of the harshest, strongest, most oppressive Caesars that there was in all of the Greco-Roman empire. And Tiberius Caesar had done something. He had made Pontius Pilate the governor over Judea. In other words, the ruler over all of the Jewish people. Now, this name, Pontius Pilate, will be relatively familiar to you if you know the Christmas story or if you know Jesus' story. This is the guy who will eventually preside over the trial that Jesus is in at the end of his life. This is the one who will eventually release Jesus to the crowds so that Jesus could be crucified. Luke then tells us about two brothers. He tells us about Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, the Tetrarch of Aeteria and Trachonitis. Now, these two brothers are really important in the story of Jesus and John's life. Herod here is not the Herod the Great who was there at the birth of Jesus, the one who decreed that every male Jewish son under the age of two needed to be killed, the one who caused Jesus and Joseph and Mary to flee to Egypt. Not that Herod. That Herod was the father of this Herod. This is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is the one who would eventually arrest John and put him in prison. This is the one who would eventually write the decree that would cause the beheading of John. Now, that happens because of the next guy on the list, Philip. Philip is Herod's brother. By the way, stick with it. This is like Game of Thrones in a moment, okay? So just stick with this. You've got Herod, you've got Philip, his brother. Now, Philip's wife is Herodias. Herodias has an affair with Herod Antipas. His brother's, his, yeah, his whatever, yeah, with that guy. <laughs> they have an affair, and it's not good. And John the Baptist is willing to speak truth to power. John the Baptist knows about this affair and he confronts Herod about it. And he says, what you're doing with Herodias is wrong. That's your brother's wife. And his willingness to speak truth to power ends up putting John in prison and Herod will be the one who would decree that he needs to be beheaded, that he needs to die for the reality that he was willing to speak up for what was wrong in the leadership around him. Are you still with me? Now Luke could have just stopped with the nasty horrible Romans but he doesn't. He then mentions two Jewish leaders. He mentions Annas and Caiaphas. These were both high priests in the time of John and Jesus's ministry. Both of them represent the power of the Jewish people at the time. They represent the rich Jewish elite of the days. And both Annas and Caiaphas had become incredibly wealthy off of the worship that was done in the temple. They had personally pocketed that money. Not only that, but they would eventually hold private trials against Jesus and they would be there mocking Jesus as he sent to the cross. Now, Annas and Caiaphas started the marketplace in the temple. Where the poor people would come to sell whatever they could in order to buy a sacrifice worthy to take into the temple to repent of their sins. In fact, that whole marketplace was known as Annas's marketplace. And Annas and Caiaphas made a lot of money out of the profits that the poor people were bringing to buy sacrifices. This is the backdrop to when Jesus, in that last week of his life, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, goes straight to the temple. He makes a whip of cords and he turns over the tables and he whips the people. He spreads out and he busts out that marketplace because of the injustice that it stood for. Are you you with me? So Luke wants you to know, right at the story of Advent, here are all the leaders that were in place. It's like Luke is laying out for us what the world's leadership looks like. Broken, corrupt, oppressive, profiting off the poor and the vulnerable. I mean, he just puts it straight out there. All the ones that are going to have an impact on the death, both of John the Baptist and Jesus. It's like Luke is saying, this is the reality in which God begins to bring his word. Look at where humanity has gotten to, all of the oppression, all of the injustice, all of the corruption, both with the Gentiles and with the Jews. And into that, God brings his word. Now, this is the other fascinating thing. Notice in verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to Tiberius Caesar. No. Sorry, the word of God came to Herod Antipas. Mm. Okay, maybe the word of God would never have come to a Roman. Sure, I get that. So so the word of God comes to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest of the temple. The word of God comes to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. The word of God, in other words, having not spoken for 400 years doesn't come into the corridors of power but comes into the one that society had rejected. That the word of God falls upon the very one who was living in the wilderness, living in the wasteland, who had been rejected by his own people. The one who had the unkept hair and the eating of the locusts the one who had privilege himself because he was the son of a priest, but who had given up that privilege, turned it aside, reversed it, was willing to become a servant of his people because he had a word to bring them, and in that place of wilderness, he would speak. And what Luke wants you to see is something that's so profoundly important about Advent, that true power and influence and leadership does not reside in the corridors of prestige and privilege and patronage, but in the less traveled pathways of humility and holiness and honor. That's where the Lord's word comes. And maybe that's some good news for all of us. As we look at all the things that have been happening in the world this year, we look at the global reality that we have as a a crisis of global leadership. Maybe we shouldn't be looking for those in the corridors of power to speak a word of God to us. Maybe that word resides in this room. Maybe Advent tells us that God speaks to those that have been rejected. Those that are not loved. Those that struggle with the realities of life. Advent is a welcomed gift to bring us closer to Him. Now, what is the message that John brings from the margins to the people? Well, it says here in verse 3. It says... He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Stick with this church. 400 years of silence. I don't know if I was God, I don't think I would start with this topic. Like if I was God, I'd want to come and go, yep, I've been silent for 400 years, but hey, I'm back, and I want to give you some hope. I want to give you some life. I want to tell you how awesome you are. I want to speak encouragement into you. I want to bring you into the flourishing of life. Oh, I've got so much to say to you. It's been 400 years. You're awesome. <laughs> like that's what I would do. And what is it that God does? Here comes John from the margins. Somebody, everybody had cast out, and he was forgotten, and he says, repent. He he says there's sin in you, and that sin will block you from being able to see the arrival of Jesus. That sin will cause you not to be able to see the beautiful kingdom of God that is about to be released in the Messiah. That sin will hold you on the outside. Repent. This word repent in the Greek is the word metanoia. Metanoia means to turn around, or, or it means to reorient yourself in a new direction. I love that. See, the repentance that John was bringing to his people was not to say sorry to God. He wasn't coming to his people and saying, hey, just just say sorry to God. Just, just maybe feel a little bit bad about your sin. You know, or, or even, he's not even just saying, confess your sin. And we've come as Christians to make those things what we think repentance is about. All of those things are involved in repentance, but the sum of them is not what repentance is. Because if you ask God to forgive you for your sin and make no effort to try to change your life away from that sin, in John's eyes, you've not repented. Because repentance is a reorientation into another direction. Repentance comes from the lips, but it is made manifest in the fist, in the hand, in the working out, in the walking out of our lives. That's the repentance we're called to. It's not for the faint of heart. It means that we want to leave behind our life of sin. It means that we want to actually live in a different way. And as Christmas comes in 2020, I wonder if the cry of Advent is relevant again for you. I wonder if you could hear this word coming to you that maybe there's an option right now, a time, a period, where as we long for the coming of Jesus again, that we make sure that there's nothing in our lives that would cause us to miss him. Maybe it's time for us to repent. Not just to say sorry, but actually to live a different way. But something I've noticed about this. See, I've noticed that John the Baptist's call of this idea that a Messiah is coming who will put an end to all sin forever, who will judge injustice and unrighteousness and call it out for what it will and actually change it and turn it and put an end to it. That message is not so frightening for the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed of the earth as it is for those of us who have so much to lose. Come on, church. I I put it to you that if you're super excited about that really nice present that your spouse is going to give you for Christmas... That one that you've been asking about for ages and dropping hints and maybe writing things on the fridge and hoping that they might pay attention. That one that you've been talking about for so long and you know that they have got the money and it's expensive. Yes, it's expensive, but it will bring you so much joy and you're so excited that that little present's going to be under the tree on Christmas Day. I put it to you that you're probably not that excited about the idea of praying for Jesus' return before Santa returns. Or maybe bring it home this way. Maybe you're in a business and you're running a business and your business is profiting off of some not-so-legal activities. I don't think you're going to be as excited to hear a message about repentance of sin if you're profiting from that very thing we think of as sin. But what about this? What about the Christian who's in prison in China? What do you think the idea of repentance might mean for them? What about for that refugee or asylum seeker who's struggling to make ends meet in Yamate? What about for the one who's been oppressed or hurt or pulled down or discriminated because of the color of their skin or because of their gender? Maybe for them, the idea of a coming Messiah who will put all things right, maybe for them, it's like honey on the lips. The idea of the the call of Advent, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, might be the difference of life and death for them. Maybe it's the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed who need this the most. I put it to you. That those of us who struggle with the idea of repentance are probably more in love with what it is that we have to lose than it is to the one that we might lose it to. Come on, church. That the cool of Advent might remind us that we need to put our lives right because he is coming again. Because, yeah, we look forward to that moment in the manger and the celebration of the reality of Him coming into this world. But the Scriptures also tell us that He's going to return again. And as He returns again, He's going to put everything right. All injustice is changed. Everything structurally moved. The whole kingdom of God seen for the fullness of its glory. And we stand in the middle between the first arrival in the manger and the coming again in the new Jerusalem. And what is on our hearts? Are we crying out and saying, I want to live in a way that honors the arrival of the second coming of Christ, or am I going to play myself more towards the very thing that might cause me to miss him completely? This is why Luke then gives us the idea of what this change of heart looks like, of what the renewal of Advent really is with this passage from Isaiah. Verse 4, it says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert. This is John. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain will be made low. The crooked roads become straight. The rough ways made smooth. All people will see God's salvation. Isaiah crying out some 700 years before uh, John's beginning of his ministry. foretells a time where one will come who will prepare the way. Prepare the way because the people needed to be disrupted from the hardness of their hearts. Prepare the way because the people needed to be changed to be able to see Jesus. And this one will come, and here's what he will do. The way he will prepare the way is by making the path straight, making those crooked ways now straight again, removing the roughness from the path so that the king might come. See, this imagery is important for Isaiah because this imagery, some, some bunch of years before the Greek and Roman Empire and all the amazing kind of uh, avenues of infrastructure that they created, in Isaiah's time, if a dignitary, if a king came to a town, they would send somebody in front of them to actually literally clear the path out the way. Because the roads weren't particularly good in those days. And so they would literally take the stones, the big stones that might knock the chariot out of the way. And they'd pick them up and throw them away. They would, if there were any ridges or, or kind of mounds like this, they would flatten down the mounds to make a straight, clear path. So when the dignitary came in his chariot, he would be able to get to his destination where he was supposed to go. That's the imagery in Isaiah's mind and John picks up on that imagery and he says, this is my calling. This is my ministry. This is what I'm here to do. I'm here to make those crooked paths straight, to take those stones away, not from the physical roads anymore, but from the crookedness, the hardness of our hearts. And this really is John's call. This is what Advent is all about. You see, Advent is a call to personal renewal. It's a call for you to examine the, the paths of your heart that lead to Jesus. It, it's a call to you to take a look at what injustices sit within you, of what sin is there that you've wrestled with recently. It, it, it's a call for you, an invitation for you to make the crooked paths of your heart straight again to be able to remove whatever obstacles might be there for receiving more and more of Jesus at this Christmas time so that you can come and celebrate him with a fresh renewal of your heart. Advent is a call for you to make the paths of your life straight. Are you with me? Now, I want you to do that not by sitting here and listening to this message today. I want you to do that by putting that into practice in your life. I want you to take what we're talking about today and actually reflect in your own spiritual disciplines throughout the week on exactly what we're talking about. So, so here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to get your camera out, your phone out, which has a camera, most of them. So get your phone out. And I'm going to show two slides here that I want you to take a photo of. The reason being is I want you to sit with these questions in the week ahead. I want you to reflect in your own personal time around these challenging questions. I'll let you take slide one. Five, four, three, two, one, slide two. This is Advent for me. Advent for you. It's about the renewal of your person. And I believe as you sit with those questions this week, the Holy Spirit will challenge you about putting some of those crooked ways in your life straight. Is that helpful? It's helpful for promise. Is that helpful for anyone else? All right. Now, here's the important thing, though. Don't ever make Advent only about you. Advent is not just about your own personal renewal. When John the Baptist began to preach a a, a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, it was not just directed at personal renewal. He was also standing before all of the structures that Luke had laid out, both the Roman and the Jewish structures, and all of the injustice and the corruption and all the stuff that was happening. And he was standing before that and he was saying, God's kingdom is going to reverse so much of what we see here. In other words, there is social reversal that the kingdom of God brings. See, Advent is also about social reversal. It's not just about your own personal renewal, as important as that is. That's the first step, absolutely. But after that, then the call comes, what is it that's broken around us? What are the systems and the structures that are keeping the people impressed? What are some of the things that we see around us that as Christians we can stand up against? We can speak truth to power. Truth to power like like John the Baptist does in front of Herod that even cost him his head. Where might we be able to speak truth to power and act in in, in a proper righteousness to stand against injustice like Jesus does in the temple with those whips and the cords and the overturning of all of the profit that was being made from the poor? Where might we? be able to partner with God this Advent in standing for this social reversal that we see so often in God's kingdom. This theme is in the whole of the Christmas story. Let me just give you one example from Luke 1, starting in verse 51. This is Mary's song, pregnant with Jesus, and she turns before God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and she sings these words. She says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Notice the reversal, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent away the rich empty. The social reversal that takes place in the coming of the kingdom of God. This is prefiguring Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled the kingdom of God that we get invited into, the story of Christmas, what Advent is all about, is not just a change within me, but a change within me for the change in the world. That actually Christ comes to change the world to the kingdom of God. It's subversive and it's powerful and it doesn't shout from the corridors of power, but it comes from the broken and the vulnerable and it turns everything upside down. So get your phones one more time and I want you to take a photo of these two slides because this is Advent for us, the reversal. I want you to reflect this week in your quiet time and in your own personal way on this questions: Five, four, three, four two, one, and this one. And I want you to sit with these questions because here at the Vine, God speaking is not 90 minutes on a Sunday, amen? But what we're talking about here is important. And we wanna invite you to take your time to sit in the reality of the cool of Advent, the cool of John the Baptist, renewal and reversal. That actually every act of God's redemptive power and activity in this world sits under these two things of renewal and reversal, renewal and reversal. I believe this Christmas, God wants to renew your heart. And I believe he wants to show you the things that you could be praying for to see reversal come in our city and our society. This is the heart of God. The great question that Advent leads us to is are we willing to clear the paths? Are we actually willing to make the way straight? John the Baptist stood before a people who hadn't heard God for 400 years. I stand before you today, not knowing when the last time God spoke to you. And I issue a call to you this Christmas. Repent. And by that, I don't mean just say sorry. Live a different way. I wonder if you could stand with me. I wanna pray. If you're comfortable too, you can open your hands. You don't need to, but I'm gonna pray for us. Father, we thank you that we stand in this moment in the call of Advent as we prepare our hearts for your arrival at Christmas in just a few weeks' time. But in the bigger picture of things, you're coming again in your second coming. And as we stand between those two world-changing events, forgive us, Lord, where we love what it is that we might lose more than the one that we are to lose it to. Forgive us, Lord, where we've hardened our hearts off the back of such a hard year forgive us, Lord, where our waiting for your voice in our unanswered prayers has challenged us to give up on you. Father, we stand here in this moment as a community of faith. We thank you for your presence and your word. We thank you that after 400 years, you brought a word that was not easy to hear and not easy to swallow. And we stand together now as a community of faith with the same word sitting over us. We need that disruption of Advent as well. All of us can think of areas in our lives that are crooked and not straight. Areas of our lives that are waiting to be invited by your Holy Spirit to you so that, yes, we can ask for your forgiveness. Yes, we can confess that sin, but also that we might begin to live in a new way, that we would turn around, reorient ourselves in a new direction. Holy Spirit, I pray for anyone in this room where that is the cry of their hearts today, that over this week and the next coming weeks, as we unpack the life of John the Baptist, they would feel themselves coming alive again, that they would hear the call And they would respond. And we thank you for this. In your name.